0: Hello there. Servus. My name is Hayshawn Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. What do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about the U.S. diplomatic losing streak, a coalition of European countries trying to curb the flow of migrants onto the continent, and a follow-up to the Middle Eastern war scenario I laid out last week, but here we're going to focus on what would come after that potential conflict that seems to be brewing there. All of that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid fire news. So Canada and Germany have signed an agreement to cooperate in the development of hydrogen power and technology, and this is to displace fossil fuels like oil, coal, and natural gas. We'll have to see where this goes, although it does seem to be pretty promising in the lead up to what it will probably eventually be fusion power, which technically is hydrogen power itself. but. It's always 50 years away. We'll see if it's actually 50 years away this time, but this seems to me like a pretty decent stepping stone because hydrogen is everywhere. Effectively, you would have water put into the tank. Well, water is H2O, but close enough. So there's that. The Taiwanese defense minister, Chu Ko-cheng, has announced that the country will increase its military presence in disputed territories Namely, the Parcel Islands. Uh, That is an island chain that is hotly disputed between them and the mainland China. Uh, And this coming in light of rising tensions in the South China Sea. We did an episode a couple weeks back talking about what seemed to be the beginning of a naval build-up. uh, Or rather, the Chinese are already building up, but rather a naval arms race. As it was, I believe, the Philippines who was beginning to build up their vessels. So there's that. We'll always have to keep our eye on that region. It's definitely definitely not a flashpoint for no reason. So we'll, t- we'll have to keep our eyes on that one. Russia had recalled their American envoy for consultation in Moscow. Now, he was returned to his position on Saturday, but this came uh, in light of... One of the diplomatic, I, in my opinion, a diplomatic blunder, uh, by our current administration with regards to Russia, and we'll get into that in a little bit, and the kind of the fallout that has surrounded it, which is why I have come to the opinion that it was a blunder, despite its intended effect of showing strength, because uh, that was the intended effect. If you watch the interview between President Biden. And I believe... Stephanopoulos? I believe that's his name. Uh, We'll get into that later. Uh, In other news, a journalist has been arrested on spying charges in the Crimea. Uh, The U.S. has objected to this and voiced dissent. Meanwhile, the longest-serving Zulu king has died at the age of 72 triggering a burial ceremony referred to them as the planting and of course triggering the succession process so we'll we'll see who becomes the new Zulu king so there there there's your neglected parts of the world update now we <laughs> I, I will try to get to that in the next episode though cuz you never know what comes out of these small countries that impacts everyone else Now Bulgaria, speaking of small countries, Bulgaria has arrested and charged six people for allegedly spying for Russia. Now the Russian ambassador, well the Russian embassy I should say, has claimed innocence until proven guilty. And we'll have to see how this goes down. But um, interesting we're seeing these charges on spying coming out uh, in Eastern Europe. Will it lead to something... Who knows? People don't really like being spied on, and they don't like it when you deny that your spies were there when they have your spies in custody. Uh, it reminds me of the U two incident uh, during the Cold War, where the American spy plane got shot down, and America pretended that it didn't send spies, <laughs> didn't send people to go spy on Russia. It's always fun watching those sorts of things. You know when when you know the nukes aren't pointed at you, but. Yeah. Anyway, speaking of nukes, we have North Korea uh, severing ties with Burma, but not for the reason you may think. It is not over the military coup that has happened in Burma, but instead it is over the extradition, which is where they send, say, a prisoner that they have put into prison to another country. Uh, this extradition of a North Korean man who was charged with money laundering and Burma sent that guy to the United States instead of to Korea and that is why Korea is severing ties with Burma because North Korea and the United States aren't exactly on friendly terms. There was a bit of a thawing um, and a warming up during the Trump administration You, as we all saw when he crossed over the DMZ and they both did. Oh, wait, no, was it just him? Oh, whichever way it went. um, The president of the United States crossed into North Korea for a brief moment, and that represented something huge, as that man would say. But now it seems that we're going back to kind of the pre-Trump administration relations with North Korea, or at least the -Um, pre-Trump-Kim summit relations, because... We, we, there was a bit of a tw- hot Twitter exchange between the two that led up in the lead up to that um, summit. So we, we could kind of, we're we kind kind of going back to that and then probably further back then that to where North Korea was hyped up as an enemy rather than, uh, well, just a country in, in East Asia, which is what it seemed like we were going to. Uh, while we're on in East Asia, China's counselor in its mission to Geneva has delivered a scaling criticism of the U.S. track record on human rights, specifically referring to police brutality, racial discrimination, and genocide. Now, they're probably referring to Native Americans with that whole genocide part, but he doesn't specify. he doesn't specify what he means. Uh, so there's that. All of these, all of these things being used against us. Then, <laughs> meanwhile, South Africa. We're going back to South Africa. Is currently in the stages of an of a coming water crisis, uh, as reliable water supplies become increasingly scarce, and their population continues to rise. Their main sources that they pin this on would. Uh, as for why the crisis is as bad as it is, and likely to get worse, is urbanization, so more and more people are living in the cities, and aging infrastructure, so it's not as efficient as it should be, or as it could be, and you're effectively losing water in the process of trying to get it to these places in the cities. So, we'll have to see how they deal with that, and hopefully they can. Meanwhile, The NATO exercise Defender Europe 2021, which uh, has taken it has taken place over the course of last week. Now, the exercise was ranging from the Balkans to the Black Sea. Uh, This was a U.S. Army led exercise where about 28,000 troops from 27 countries participated. Obviously, most of those were American. And very interesting uh, development. It's probably just standard procedure, but given the time frame and the fallout between America and Russia and China, which we'll get into in just a little bit, seems uh, like it has added to the fire of those tensions. And we'll have to see where things go. And, last but not least, we have locust swarms and natural disasters threatening agriculture around the world. Uh, even as supply chains are already under immense pressure due to the worldwide economic lockdowns. So, famine? Question mark? Hopefully not. Uh, but if people can't grow their food, because there's no one to sell it. Well, there are people to sell it to, but... (laughs) Do they have the money? If they can't go to work, who knows? And you, if, how are you going to sell it to them if your crops get eaten? We could have a looming crisis with regards to food on our hands. And I remember the UN was warning about this over the course of last summer. And it seems now we're starting to see some of the effects of that. All right. Uh what was i what was i uh yeah remember how i said i wanted to cover some of the neglected parts of the globe well my home country decided it wants to be talked about but for all the wrong reasons so we'll get into the meat and we'll start off with the more painful segment for me which is the US losing streak week now In an interview that President Biden made, he, well, that he gave, um, I'm reading off my notes here, in an interview that he gave, he made very harsh remarks toward the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, and in this he called Putin a killer, and he said he had no soul. These statements, while intended to show strength of the president, that he was going to stand up to dictators like he had promised on the campaign trail, uh, it seems like they didn't hit the mark as well as they were intended to, because they were not met with similar vulgar. They were instead met with open and unabashed mockery from the other side. Now, Putin, when he was in an interview on his own, and he was this was brought up to him, he pulled a, it takes one to know one on Biden, and then jokingly wished him good health. Uh, that is not reciprocal to calling somebody a killer and saying they have no soul, which implies this man is either not taking it seriously, or he's making it appear that he's the bigger man. Uh, but as it wasn't just Putin in Russia who basically mocked Biden for this. The leader of the Russia United Party, which is the dominant political party in Russia, Andrei Turchek, is his name. He made waves himself when he responded to Biden's words by saying that they were a reflection of, quote, the U.S.'s political marasmus, which means weakness, and its leader's dementia. Yes, he played the dementia card. He went there. Uh, this embarrassment was then followed just a couple days later by the u.s. China summit in Anchorage Alaska Uh, now here in the opening statements both parties made uh, they openly voiced the points of contention with one another rather than you know introductory statements Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, he brought up the issue of Uyghurs and the genocide going on in Xinjiang. Uh, he brought up the crackdowns on Hong Kong, which is supposed to be a semi-autonomous region in China, uh, as well as the threats that China has made to Taiwan, uh, yet another province that is claimed by China uh, and is technically still at war with due to the civil war. Uh, and claiming that they, well Anthony Blinken claimed that China threatened the rules-based order that maintains global stability. The Chinese top diplomat Yang Jiechi fired back to this saying that US democracy was struggling, Americans had little faith in their democracy and criticized US treatment of its minorities as well as the American foreign policy. Uh, And he said that, quote, the United States uses its military force and financial hegemony to carry out long-arm jurisdiction and suppress other countries. Uh, To which, given the fact that our military can never seem to be allowed to come home, uh, they've hit us where it hurts uh, we hit them where it hurts and they hit us back. So what we have here is the two teams of diplomats, uh, not talking trade or relations at all, but rather just sitting there insulting each other. The two teams of diplomats then feuded after these statements over the presence of the press and the news agencies and accused the other party of acting in bad faith. They each accused the other of Being the assholes of the situation. And there was talk uh, of the U.S. potentially working with China on environmental policy. This was kind of like in an after afterwards these statements were given. Um, There was talk of U.S. potentially working with China on environmental policy. The pandemic and North Korean denuclearization. But none of these, I believe, is going to happen, and I'll lay it out as to why I don't believe that they will. Number one, uh, the environmental policy, or rather, no, we'll start with the pandemic. China is not going to admit that the virus came from China, and they effectively have the World Health Organization in the back pocket, who covered up for them for those weeks well, uh, in the lead-up. To the global pandemic. Back when the stuff was still in. Still just in China. So. And the WHO didn't. Say anything about it. They didn't investigate. And that allowed the virus to spread to the rest of the world. So that's why I say the. The WHO is in China's back pocket. And as, as far as environmental policy goes. China is building new coal power plants. Um, so no environmental cooperation, they have the WHO in the back pocket, so no pandemic cooperation, and North Korea denuclearizing isn't China's decision to make, as powerful as China has become, it's still not their decision to make, it is, oh goodness, it is the decision of the North Koreans to make. So, that's not going to happen either, especially since Kim Jong-un isn't even answering the phone calls when Biden is on the other end. So, that's not happening either. All three of those seem to be dead in the water, at least for now. Maybe something will change, but it doesn't seem that way. All in all, the current administration's diplomacy Towards our key adversaries at the moment is a bit of a mess Or at the very least it's gotten off to a very rocky start Uh, Very very rocky one indeed Especially the US China summit in Alaska that was seemed to be a bit of a disaster Combo blows to the gut and the kidney Hopefully we can pull out of the tailspin and Get our shite together. But it seems like that's going to be a big ask. There's uh, currently talk right now as to whether or not we'll be able to pull our troops out by the May 1st deadline. Uh, pull our troops out of Afghanistan by the May 1st deadline. The main argument against that being that our allies are still there. And that we we just can't leave them behind. But come on, man. Dude. They, oh my goodness, um, I'm ready for this war to be over, but it appears that people like, people who think the way I do aren't running the show anymore, um, and we're probably going to be overstaying the deadline, but we're going to be overstaying the deadline, I was watching an interview by this one guy, I forget the, what news channel it was, I think it was CBS, and this guy, he was talking about it, he said, "Is it realistic?" And then he then he he brought out the magic words. He brought out the magic words. Everybody, we need a sound exit plan. And I said, "Oh, I guess we're never leaving Afghanistan. That's it. It's confirmed. We're not. are <laughs> not leaving." Oh, it's painful. So very painful to my isolationist soul. Oh, but I guess other people are potentially getting things right on their own problems, because uh, we have. As many of you know, and for those who don't, there is a migrant crisis in Europe, largely caused by the Syrian civil war and the rise of ISIS in the Middle East and across northern Africa. So what we have here are ministers from Spain, Italy, Malta, Cyprus, and Greece uh, came together to meet in Athens. Uh, Athens being a city in Greece, the capital city, if I'm not mistaken. Very old, very historic, very cultured. And they've met there to discuss the situation with regards to the migrant crisis and the EU's policy towards it. And this, the Med-5 group, as they're being called, Med standing for Mediterranean, Med being short for Mediterranean, I should say, Um, the group was actually formed last year to deal with the crisis within the framework of the EU, as all members of this coalition are themselves a part of the European Union. Now, these five are usually the first countries that migrants from the Middle East and North Africa land in when they journey to Europe, meaning that these five countries are effectively on the front lines in this crisis, um... For Europe, not the Middle East or North Africa, though. though Those are different front lines where the people are leaving. But that being said, these five countries bear the brunt of the crisis in Europe. So they're obviously going to have very different response than the people who kind of get it second and third hand. Uh, I know the Brits are kind of in a... Dispute over their own sovereignty in their waters because the French won't stop migrants from crossing the channel uh, Seems France is burning a lot of bridges. We'll see how long it takes for them to burn their bridge with Germany <laughs> but um, This uh, back to the med 5 This new they have created will drafted what is called a new migration and asylum pact and this seeks to get a grip on the maritime borders uh, as they feel overwhelmed both by the number of people coming and by the necessary screening and reviewing processes that have to occur in order to handle all these people coming uh, so that you can make sure that they're safe for everyone living in your country, which includes other migrants who have come already. Now, they say they want to handle the border and... They want, they want to handle the situation with their borders and maintain solidarity with the rest of the EU. My belief, that will be impossible unless the EU's stance changes considerably. And now we have seen the EU back uh, certain countries when they stand up. Uh, Like, for instance, when Greece put up a wall to stop the migrants that were being released by Turkey. uh, We saw the EU standing in solidarity with Greece. They didn't exactly do all that much to help the Greeks, but they were there emotionally. So we could see that sort of emotional backing for these five, uh, which includes Greece itself still, So there's that, but I don't see much in the way of material support because, again, what they're doing here is contradictory to the European Union's official position on this matter. Uh, As a matter of fact, they're acting both independently and contradictory to the European Union's official position on this matter. Uh, And to give just a couple examples, we'll go back to Greece who put up a wall to stop the migrants that were released by Turkey, which, in and of itself, uh, Turkey doing this was a geopolitical move. They were effectively extorting the EU to give them money in exchange for not sending migrants into Europe. Uh, And they just decided, you know what, we're just going to let them go. Because the EU couldn't give them the money, or the EU decided not to give them the money. Um, so that was what Greece did. They put up a wall to stop these migrants. Italy, back under Salvini's government, greatly restricted the access of migrants to the country. And we've, uh, so there's that as well. Malta, what is it? Malta, Cyprus, and Spain. Uh, we have yet to see too much, or at least I have yet to see too much as to what they're doing. But I'd imagine that if they're a part of this coalition, they're probably intending on doing something rather than nothing. So I believe that is a sound assessment to make. But the key thing that I have noted from this grouping up of these Mediterranean states is that we have here the EU, the European Union, and we've talked about their perpetual secession crisis but here we have yet another layer it just keeps layering on and getting worse for them uh we talked about how they're under internal siege from all points of the compass they have secessionists in the west with one successful attempt by the british um the east uh hungary poland they are in open defiance of the European Union's authority over them and believe, and I believe it was Hungary or either Hungary or Poland that had a court, their constitutional court reaffirm that their constitution is above EU law. That is textbook open defiance of someone else's authority over you. So we have secessionists in the West. Open defiance of authority in the East, a potential for extortionism in the Southeast via Greece. Multiple politicians who are in office in Greece have talked about uh, trying to gain money out of the EU in exchange for doing what the EU want them to, which, if you haven't if you haven't heard, is effectively holding their membership hostage in exchange for concessions. Probably money and economic aid. So there's that. And now we have nearly the entire southern rim of the EU deciding to act independently of Brussels on the topic of immigration. All the while, Germany, France, and and the Netherlands are wavering in their willingness to hold the center. Uh, And I say this as Germany doesn't want to have to pay for another bailout of another EU member state like they did with Greece and Ireland. And of course, the British are chipping away at them and accelerating all these trends from the outside simply by existing. Uh, As an alternative to the EU, as proof that independence is an option. So, you have the EU under siege Internally, and by Britain existing, the EU is under siege externally. It seems the EU is falling apart slowly and painfully. Uh, but we have increasing self levels of self-reliance on the member states of the EU. And I imagine that as time goes on and as these countries are put in these positions where they have, where they have an issue... They ask for help from the EU. The EU doesn't do anything for them. And they have to solve the problem themselves. Or work with other EU members. Independent of Brussels. To get things done. Eventually they're just going to say. Why Why are we a part of this? Why are we a part of this? Britain's independent. Maybe maybe that's the way to go. If that's what it takes. To say close or get control over the border and stop these migrants. Or maybe we need independence. Because we need control over our sovereignty. And the EU law is not above our constitution. What happens then? Will there be an EU left? I don't know. It seems to me like there's just going to be Northern Europe. of The Northern European Union of France the Benelux and Germany and maybe Denmark. It seems like that's what the EU is falling down and collapsing down into with all of these different rebellions against them in rebellions in their own in distinct way. Hmm. Very, very interesting things happening in Europe. But uh we will get to that follow-up of that war in the Middle East that I talked about last time. Uh, we'll get to that in just a moment. All right, and we are back. And now it's time for the follow-up to a, the last week where we talked about what a war, a broader war in the Middle East, would look like, this war being instigated by... Iran and Israel, coming to blows, and actually shooting at each other directly, rather than indirectly, like they're doing now. So, we talked about that, and what it would entail, just a little bit of what it would entail during the war, how it would effectively flatten the oil supplies of the world, leaving Russia and the United States as the last men standing, making off like bandits while everyone else was busy (laughs) living in rubble basically as their competition will be wiped out american russian competition the americans and the russians are too far away they'd be just fine or at the very least their oil production is too far away so we talked about that but i noticed that i talk about war and conflict a lot so I decided to do this follow-up where we're going to talk about what comes after the war and the conflict. Yes, that is right. We're talking about peace in a post-war Middle East. Now, if I wake up dead tomorrow, it wasn't suicide. But <laughs> anyway, we're going to we're going to get into a bit of what that would look like. Uh, again, lined out Lined out, outline what a war between Israel and Iran would entail for the neighborhood. Neighborhood being the Middle East. Uh, We talked about how Iraq and Syria would get cut up in the crossfire. How Syria itself, the fighting extending to Syria, would drag in the U.S. and Russia via Syria. And you'd have oil facilities destroyed from Iran Saudi Arabia Syria and the UAE and Iraq and probably Kuwait if they got involved or were dragged in somehow a lot of oil All right, that's a lot of oil and means a lot of money for the Russians and the Americans who would be who would their oil production would be untouched now the aftermath of such a conflict truthfully no one wins but we're, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna try to in in light of that, we're going to see who wins and who loses, all right? Understanding that no one in this region is actually going to be the winner. We're going to see who the winners and losers are. So, we have I've split it into two scenarios here. Um, these are post-war scenarios. First scenario is if the Israel and U.S.-backed coalition were to win. Now, if they were to win, Iranian influence and their forces would be banished to the mountains of Persia. And they'd probably lose a little bit of uh, their flatland in their west as they were pushed back beyond the the Zagros Mountains. Now, Iran wouldn't lose territory, aside from those, outside of a peace deal because they would have to sign it away. To really lose land. Iran is really, really, really mountainous. Meaning they could just sit there and camp. And and pull in Afghanistan if you tried to invade them. And they have a really large army too. I believe they have a million men. And a million men in the mountains uh, equals bad time. Very, very bad time. Especially if they dig in. Air power is less effective in the mountains. And it's easier to shoot down planes when you can get up on the high ground and aim at them while they can't see you. So, Iran would look roughly the same. Their borders would look roughly the same. Although they would lose significant amounts of influence throughout the Middle East. Which is why I say they would effectively be banished to the mountains of Persia uh, for probably the rest of the century. Iraq, the Iraqi and Syrian governments would be overthrown promptly and replaced with a democratic via U.S.-Israel influence, a democratic Sunni via uh, the Arabian and UAE influence dominated government. They would be overthrown and replaced with a democratic Sunni-dominated government. Now, that is unlikely to happen to Iran Although there would be pressure to do so, particularly from Israel, America, and the Saudis, but it wouldn't be really feasible, especially if you have the Russians backing them like they would, uh, just from being drawn into the conflict on their side. That And again, again, it's very easy to maintain a defensive position in the mountains and imagine having to fight Russian equipment in those large-ass mountains. That's just a losing strategy waiting to happen. So, despite the pressure for that and the willpower, the political will, for that to happen, all it would take is for Iran to say no, but we'll accept the peace deal for Iran to keep its independence. Iraq, Syria, overthrown. Um, I, afterwards, a new regional competition for power... Would ensue between Israel and Arabia. Uh, what else can you say? Uh, I guess I should explain, because the Saudis, the Saudis, the Saudis would be the bigger winner. Again, in light of having lots of oil production facilities destroyed from rocket bombardments and probably a couple of kamikaze attacks due to the. Lack of range of some weapon systems, they would take over the Middle East. Influentially, I should say. They wouldn't necessarily be able to directly control all of the Middle East, but Arabia, due to their control over the holy cities of Mecca and Medina, they already have outsized influence over the Islamic world. If they won this battle, this war, Against Shia Iran, the Shia section of the faith, the Muslim faith, they would emerge as the undisputed leader of the Muslim world. No more of that Shiite blasphemy, as Iran, the primary champion of the Shia Islamic faith, would no longer be able to compete for influence in the region. They'd be kicked out. Now, this shift in the balance of power is what would turn the de facto allies of Israel and Arabia and their expanded spheres of influence against one another. Israel would make out with control over the Levant, uh, expanding their influence. That would be the expanse of their influence, I should say. They would control Lebanon, Jordan, and parts of western Syria. Saudi Arabia would dominate Essentially, everything to the east of that, reaching from the Levant, the territories I've just laid out to you, plus Israel, they would control everything reaching from the Levant to Iran and the Persian Gulf. Now, Turkey, during this, would have seized parts of northern Syria and Iraq via military occupation, similar to what they're doing now in northern Syria, just a little bit more. Russia would have used the conflict... To justify a higher troop presence in their newly occupied territory, uh, sovereign and independent allies, Armenia and Azerbaijan. This would help them tighten their grip uh, over these two re- countries, which would allow them after the war to focus elsewhere, most likely the Ukraine. They would the Russians would obviously use the air bases or build new air bases in their new southern territories and the caucus tucked safely away within the Caucasus, to project air power into the middle east and they'd be formidable foe in the skies not to mention their s they could just position their s-500s and 400s in the southern caucus the lower Caucasus, which is where armenia and azerbaijan are to project air defense capabilities into their allies the allies airspace which would include Iraq and Syria and, of course, Iran. So there's that. But in the event they lost, they would still keep more troops here just due to the aftermath of all the fighting and the shattered governments that would ensue and would that would spawn militant groups of their own. The Russians would keep their troops there and j- use the increased violence... From the collapse of these states, Syria and Iraq, they would use the violence come they use the violence that would be created in the aftermath of the collapse of those governments to justify keeping more troops in the Caucasus, and then they would go focus somewhere else again. I believe that would be the Ukraine. America would have gotten the overthrowing of Al Assad uh, that they wanted. And they would have troops scattered all over the region for reasons that the country wouldn't be able to discern, but lately, when has that stopped us from keeping our troops in places where they don't need to be? So, you would see U.S. troops littered throughout this region, even as this new geopolitical struggle between Israel and Arabia uh, started to come into view, alright? People wouldn't really see it coming living in this scenario. They wouldn't see it coming until after the war when it became apparent because they'd be too focused on fighting the war. Now, uh, after the war was over, sanctions would likely be imposed on Iran and Russia by the U.S., uh, which at this point would have little effect on Russia, but it would still hurt Iran and it would effectively be kicking them while they're down. And they would definitely not have a fun time losing this. So there's that. And a tenuous peace would emerge under the U.S. security blanket. Again, as its troops would be busy throughout this region. And they would probably be putting down various militant groups that would spring up uh, in and after the chaos particularly after the overthrowing of the Iraqi and Syrian governments. Because there are already, you already see the problems that you can, you can observe from the fallout of the Syrian civil war and the Iraqi civil war and ISIS. So there would undoubtedly be more groups like that that cause trouble and keep the U.S. distracted while Israel and Arabia started to size each other up. So the U.S. would be putting down fires, maybe putting them out, all the while the Saudis and Israelis plotted, schemed, and undermined one another behind the scenes. So that's what it would look like, in my opinion, uh, if this Israel-U.S.-backed coalition would win in what looks like a possible war in the Middle East. Now, on the other side of that, uh, well, what if they lose? What if the Iranian-Russia-backed coalition won the war instead? Let's look at that. So, in that scenario, where Iran and Russia win, Iran, instead of being banished to the east of the Zagros Mountains, it would tighten its grip over Iraq and the various Shiite militant groups operating in the Middle East, such as Hezbollah and the Houthis. Now, I can't say whether they would settle for simply seizing the oil-producing regions of Saudi Arabia, setting up a separate Saudi Arabian puppet government over these territories, uh, and leave the original Arabian government with control of the holy cities, which are in the West ...the western reaches of Arabia... ...or if they would go for the full annexation... uh, ...take all of Arabia... ...along with the Holy Cities... ...and claim the mantle... ...of leader of the Islamic world... ...for themselves... Uh, ...now perhaps... ...this victory over the Sunnis... ...would give them the mandate... ...to declare as much... ...even without the Holy Cities... ...as they would have been fighting... ...the UAE... ...and Arabia these major Sunni countries. So maybe defeating them would give them the ability and the divine right to say that they are the leader of the Islamic world and that God or Allah has shined his light upon the Shiites and it is them who is going to lead the religion into the future. Who knows? Uh, But they would certainly either take the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, or install a friendly Shiite regime to rule over the country. And this would ensure that the Strait of Hormuz could never be closed on Iran by a Middle Eastern powers. Foreign powers with a good navy, different story. But the Middle East will not, would not be able to shut down the Straits of Hormuz to Iran. Uh, Russia would gain outsized clout in Iran and Syria after not only helping the Assad government remain in power but from helping the well helping the Assad government remain in power throughout a civil war but from also helping the Assad government remain in power through a civil war and a war with multiple powerful neighbors who were also backed by the United States in this scenario, Russia would gain client states. Uh, uh, well, they w- would kind of gain client states uh, for their natural gas, as many of these countries would have uh, have their energy production destroyed. Uh, although the they wouldn't be long-term client states, as they would eventually recover. And then the majority of these nations are energy exporters themselves so what russia would gain really would be security beyond their southern periphery that would that would be the biggest gain for them in this um they would secure their ally syria they would secure an ally in iran who's kind of ambiguous right now but after this they they'd be allies it'd be a done deal so that's the southern and southeastern well, not Southwest. I will just say Southern. There's Southern periphery. Uh, that would be secured. They wouldn't have to worry about things coming at them from the Middle East. Because they would have Iran and Syria there. And strong enough to fight anything that would get too close to Russia's borders. Um, so there would be that. And this would allow them that all the time that they would need. To either fully digest or potentially eventually just integrate Armenia and Azerbaijan into the Russian Federation. Uh, Maybe keep them in a state of limbo where they don't really know where they belong in Russia. Or perhaps make the two so dependent on Russia that independence is an impossibility. All three of those would be possible in this scenario where Russia won. And they would have all the time in the world to do it. There'd be nothing that could come at them from the south. Unless they had a major diplomatic fallout with either one of their wartime allies. So there's that. But either will work, alright? Whichever one uh, that Russia chooses to go down, full annexation or integration of Armenia and Azerbaijan... And Both will be allowed to be done safely The Iranians would be the ones policing the region uh, instead of America They would be busy quelling Sunni Muslim uprisings and militant groups like al-Qaeda and Remnants of the Islamic State formerly known as Isis Now depending on whether the Saudis were allowed to still have a country their royal family will Uh, likely fund, uh, well, continue to fund any and every militant group that is willing to shoot at Iranian and Shia Muslim targets throughout the Middle East. The Middle East is a very, very Sunni Muslim place, so they wouldn't be hard-pressed to find people of the right, people who were the right kind of Muslim for this job, And given that these people would be put into destitution from the war, and they would likely, through the difference in their faith, be angry at Iran for putting them there, uh, let's just say the Saudis would find no shortage of angry, young, violent, extremist men to follow through on these acts, like shooting at Iranian and Shia Muslim targets. Now, Russia being generally absent south of the Caucasus means that they'll be a secondary targets to these groups. Shia Muslims and Iranians, that is. Russia will be secondary targets. I'd imagine Syrians would be higher up on the list, but I digress. Turkey, on the other hand, would still expand into northern Syria and Iraq, but this time, they'll have oppor- the opportunity to take parts of Lebanon as well, And this would be due to the weakened Israel, and the greatly shrunk sphere of Israel's influence. Or maybe it just stays the same, and they can't really push out. Unlike the other scenario, the occupation of Northern Syria by Turkey would have consequences. As with the Iranian victory, the Assad regime would still be in power. This means that they would still be allied with Russia, rather than being replaced with some government that Russia doesn't really care about. Now that means that the occupation would lead to confrontation between Turkey and the Russo-Iranian-backed Assad government in Syria. The peacetime battle lines would be drawn uh, in Turkey's zones of occupation in northern Syria and Iraq to the north as well as the israeli sphere of influence in jordan and potentially whatever's left of arabia in the south those would be the the new geopolitical fault lines in this region turkey and israel israel's influence instead of expanding north would expand south along the the hejaz region as it's called which is the mountainous region of arabia where the holy cities are Israel would be the dominant force in that area because Iran wouldn't really be able to project its power all the way over there. There's a whole desert in their way. So you would see the battle lines be drawn there. And that's probably where the U.S. would consolidate, would reconsolidate itself. Uh, And yeah. Now, which of these would be the more likely scenario? my opinion would be the first given the fractured nature of the potential friends Iran and Russia would have uh, should the tensions between Israel and Iran break out into a full scale war here and let's just go over that potential list of friends Iran and Russia would have Syria civil war Lebanon civil war Iraq uh, civil war question mark is it over is it not they're not there all right they're not all there all right however Israel and the US on the other hand would have more uh, I, I, I don't want to say dependable um, more uh, solid partners there we go there is the right word for here. they would have more solid partners and now let's look at who those partners would be Saudi Arabia rich not in a civil war and notorious for spawning radical Islamist militant groups, Sunni Islamist militant groups, uh, and they would be fighting presumably Shia Iran, Shia Assad regime. Hmm, I wonder how that'll go. Uh, they would all the Israel US coalition would also have the UAE, also rich. And also not in a civil war. They would also have Kuwait. Uh, this one's a bit of a maybe. Um, I feel like Kuwait would really only be drawn in if someone else walked through their country, and they would be drawn in by default. Um, so they're they're here. They're maybe, but they're still rich, and still no civil war. So that being said, that's. You can see now, after outlining really just who is and isn't in a civil war, you can see who, would, which coalition would be more likely to come out on top in the event of a war between Israel and Iran. Either way, the, the big winners, I think it's important to stress after elaborating on all that, the big winners would still be, of course, the U.S. and Russia, who would be untouched. Their core territories would be untouched. As a matter of fact, the Russians would gain influence over their new core territories in Armenia and Azerbaijan. And America would get an unwelcome but probably useful reconsolidation of their troops into a more, well, consolidated defensive position along the Levant and the Hejaz Mountains. So there'd be that. They'd probably find something to do with that. We covered who this is, da, da, da. yes, yes, very interesting, so there you go, uh, now, now you can't say I only ever talk about war, but we'll get into our closing statements in just a moment, all right, I'm getting into our closing statements now, quite a bit, we've chatted about my I've put my skills on geopolitics to greater use, in my opinion, talking about the follow up to a war rather than just the war itself. And it was very interesting. It was very interesting thinking about some of the things that the countries would do after the war, because I know we, we usually talk about war and conflict a lot, as it seems that it's really brewing all around the world, or at least the potential for it is. But I've been thinking about that. And peace is just as important to geopolitics as war. War speeds up geopolitics, but peace is where you get the long-term geopolitics. Because you can look at right now, the peace that has followed World War II has really dictated the flow of a lot of the geopolitical events we've seen. Uh, there's a reason we saw rises rise in communism, rather than, say, a rise in national socialism or fascism in these countries around the world. Those ideologies were smashed during the war, World War Two, and they weren't around during the peace that followed. But the Soviet Union, a communist country, they were. They were the beacon for communism, and they had crushed the other socialisms, which gave you the peacetime situation where it was capitalism in the West, communism in the East, and there was that peacetime umbrella that kind of set the stage for the things that happened. And things would have gone very differently if different players won in World War Two, and set the tone for the peace that came after. Because we've been living in that post-war peace for a couple decades now going on what what, this is the eighth decade 75 76 years so i've come to realize just how important peace is to geopolitics as well because it was during this peace time that china has grown to be a major industrial power they would not have been able to do that if they were still under Japanese occupation for 10, 20 years after 1945, they couldn't have done it. And they couldn't have done it in war, but they did it in peace. And that's kind of an important thing I've learned. Yeah so it's kind of an interesting new light I'm starting to see things in. I guess it's a, I guess you could say it's a more peaceful light rather than the violence of constant war and conflict. But I do feel we're on the verge of something big. I don't know what'll ignite it. I don't know how it'll shake out. I just know that we're on the verge of some major conflicts and the conflicts we're on the verge on are probably going to set the stage for the next couple decades after. They're gonna probably set the stage for the rest of the century, to be completely honest. Or at least, again, just a couple decades after they happen in their respective regions. But I I don't know. Peace determines the way the next war is fought. And war determines the shape of the peace that follows. It's like a yin and yang. And I guess I've discovered the yang. (laughs) To what has been my yin, which was war. So, new things to look at, new lights to look at things through. And I guess when you look at them both, things really start to make sense. Because I laid out the war in last episode, now I've laid out the piece. And really, I could do a separate segment next time. Covering what a war between the winners and losers of the situation can be. Because the piece would change the equation. But we're going to leave the Middle East alone for now. But, uh, yeah, very, very interesting I'm learning from this experience doing this podcast. And I enjoy doing it very much. But that being said, that is all I have for today. Now, I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. And the world is changing. And we're going to have fun watching it change together. Now, I've been your host, i Sean Wade. And you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.